morning. Two uh, announcements to make. I'll main, make in the main service as well, uh, but if you're not here for that, two quick announcements or reminders. In the members' meeting a couple weeks ago, we talked about having hospitality training, opportunity to be able to uh, greet and welcome and uh, serve those who are coming to the church, whether members or non-members. If you would like to be a part of that, August 14th, August 14th, that's a Saturday from 9 till 12, 9 a.m. till 12, we'll have uh, that training. Um, excuse me, missed that. August 14th, that's a Sunday. That'll be following uh, the fellowship luncheon. We'll have training for about an hour, 1 to 2. 1 to 2, August 14th, hospitality training. If We're going to have a new members class, so if you're interested in becoming a member to the church, you would need to go through that class. That will be on August 27th. That's a Saturday. That is from 9 till 12. So new members class, August 27th, if you're interested in joining the church, 9 till 12 on a Saturday. And if you're interested in either one of those things, there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer. Sign up for that. If you uh, are interested in the new members class, once you sign up for that, I'll contact you with more information, something to fill out, and we can get you involved in that process. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We've been going along in our study here on biblical counseling, and we've got this week and next week to go, and then we'll have this completed, and we'll begin a series on discipleship. This one being on biblical counseling, Paul David Tripp in this book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. We would encourage you, if you've not picked this one up, this is a, probably a top five book for me in the sense of uh, excellent material to read. He suggests a biblical counseling model uh, with four steps, love, know, speak, and do. Love, know, speak, and do. And we are on the fourth component of that model, do. But let's review. So let's look in our Bibles at Romans 8, 31 through 39. This first component of the model, love, we find this based here in this passage of Scripture. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Follow along with me as I read. What shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see here in this passage that the love of Christ is the foundation for all ministry. Any ministry of love to one another has got to start with our understanding of God's love for us. And certainly, if we don't have love for one another, how can we truly minister to one another? There's a lot of people who want to minister, but do they love the other person? We obviously know that we have a great example of what this love is to look like in 1 Corinthians 13, and we've mentioned before that the context of this passage 
is not one of necessarily uh, the fact that the Corinthian church is doing something right. They're actually doing something wrong. And Paul is admonishing them, you're putting the gifts of the Spirit over atop, over and above what is to be the primary, primary thing in the Christian life, which is love for one another, and he exhorts them to this love. So we see this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, so if we want to uh, encourage one another and how to apply the word to our lives, but we don't want, and we're just saying that, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, so if you have the ability to take the word of God and apply it to someone's life, prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, let's say that's the gospel, because we certainly know Paul says, uh, one of the great mystery is the gospel. So you're a Christian. You can apply the word to somebody else. You have knowledge. You have wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord. If you have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. The love that must drive our counseling and our encouragements to one another has got to come from the love of God. But then it's got to be driven. Our ministry has got to be driven by love for one another. That's the first model, love. Second one in review, no. Tripp says, the genius of personal ministry is that it is personal. And in order for it to be personal, we must know the person. And we talked about asking good questions of one another in relationships rather just than assuming that we know this person. We all walk in today and we all have our Sunday best on and we all have a smile or a haircut or whatever it would be. And we, we automatically assume, well, I know what's going on in this person's life. And that's the farthest thing from really knowing a person. The assumptions don't typically add up to the truth. So asking open-ended questions, asking what and how and why and how often and when type questions. And also not allowing the busyness of our schedule or the, even the selfishness of our hearts to keep us from ministering to one another. Love, no speak. Ephesians 4.15, we're told that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. So Ephesians 4, 4.15 tells us what we're supposed to say, truth, and how we're supposed to say it, love. We talked about in this model gaining a biblical understanding of confrontation, realizing that biblical confrontation comes from knowing a person and then loving that person, building the relationship collateral to be able to engage that person over an issue. And then today, beginning this fourth component, do, do. What Tripp points out is doing involves change. Doing involves change. He says, change always demands a deeper understanding of the things of God and a more careful application of those truths to our lives. Let's think about that statement. We typically think of change. We think of something somebody's doing and then we're not doing it any longer. And that's not what Tripp is saying at all. He's saying Tripp is, actually has to come first with having a deeper understanding of God's word and then how to practically apply that. We typically think change is, well, I'm going to stop this and I'm going to start doing that. But that typically does not lead to long-term change because nothing here has changed. Yeah, you're thinking about it differently, which is a great first step, but will it actually take long-lasting effects? And for that long-lasting change to come about, there has to be a deeper understanding of the things of God and a more careful application. So not just deeper understanding, but careful application of those truths in our lives. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
If we want to help somebody with lifelong change, it's got to be rooted in the understanding of what long view living is. So what is long view living? Well, 2 Corinthians 11 helps us with this. Look at verse 1 through verse 3. Paul stating, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What is Apostle Paul saying? The Apostle Paul is saying he understands that the enemy loves to come in and deceive us from an understanding of the truth. That to live as a Christian... To live as a Christian is to live out the understanding of who we are in Christ. And realizing that that today is simply a preparation for tomorrow, and tomorrow is simply a preparation for the next day, and ultimately for the preparation of something that is far greater and more glorious, which is heaven. And that's long view living. Understanding that we've been betrothed to one husband, or we've been promised to one husband, Christ. Meaning, we've been engaged to Christ... And the life here and now is to be spent in preparation for the the consummation of that relationship, the wedding that is to come. And if we we have an understanding that the the long view of living is today is preparation, basically premarital preparation for the relationship with Christ that's going to be there for an eternity in heaven, then we realize that everything that's going on around us, whether it's the circumstances, whether it's difficulties, whether it's relationships, whatever the struggles may be, all of these are designed by God in our lives for the specific purpose of preparing us for that long view, for that one day that is to still come. And so instead of viewing whether the hard times or the circumstances out of control as something that is necessarily bad, which they certainly are, they come out of the fact that we live in a fallen world, we also view them now as tools that God is using to prepare us for the day that is to come. But then the question certainly comes into play, well, what about sin, though? If we're supposed to have a long view of living, what does sin provide? Well, sin provides short view, myopia. Before I had LASIK surgery on my eyes, I was nearsighted, meaning I could see near, but I couldn't see far. And my nearsightedness seemed to be getting more nearsighted So we took some steps to change that. Now I can see far and near. But oftentimes in sin, what sin does is it takes the long view and it makes it go fuzzy. And all you can see is the short view now. For instance, let's think about this. Let's say uh, you're struggling with some unrighteous anger. Well, instead of seeing the long view, now you're seeing the short Meaning, I want something now, and I can't get it, and I'm willing to get angry about it. It changes the long view to now living. Or maybe it's fear and anxiety. The fear and anxiety in now living, it intensifies the the situation here because we can't see far. And we want to see far, so we're, we're starting to get a little fearful, a little anxious. And that sin just makes everything come to now rather than realizing God's in control, He's sovereign. There is a far view. There is a long view of living. Tripp says when we sin, 
we go to now living and we forget three things. Number one, from this passage, who we are, that the fact that we are betrothed to Christ. Number two, what he is doing now, meaning as he's preparing for us for that final wedding. And three, what, are we, what we are supposed to be doing, which is to remain faithful to him. And Paul here in 2 Corinthians, exhorting the Corinthian church to realize that if you're going to have a long view, you've got to realize that you're betrothed to Christ, you're to prepare for that final wedding day, and that Christ is, and, and that we're to remain faithful to him. Short-sightedness takes all those things away. So if we want people to help people to change and truly change, we have to help them develop a long view way of living. Now let's think a bit more about this word change. Typically, as I said at the beginning, when we think of change, we think of maybe just a different mindset. But we can't let change be confused with knowledge or insight because just because someone has a new insight about a particular sin they're struggling with doesn't mean that change has come about. You might see it, whoa, now it's a sin. But has things, have things changed? Certainly they changed in the mind, but has your life changed in how you're handling that sin? So what can we do to help others change? Well, glad you asked. Four things. We'll take two of these this week, and we'll take two next week. Four, let's put these as, uh, let's put them as steps. Number one, establish a personal ministry agenda. Number two, clarify responsibility. Take the following two next week. Establish a personal ministry agenda. What does that mean? Well, Tripp says this is as important in informal personal ministry as it is in formal counseling situations. An agenda is simply a plan for accomplishing a goal, a map that shows us our destination, the change that needs to take place, and how to get there. What this means is where do I want to? Where, do, where does this person need to get to? It used to be that when someone uh, would come and ask for some help in a situation, I would tell them, "Well, sure, let's meet about the situation." And what I didn't have was number one, and so we would sit down and we would meet and we'd talk about different things, but there wasn't really a goal and a set forth plan of where I wanted them, according to the scriptures, to be able to to get to and how they were thinking and how they were changing and living out their life about whatever the particular sin struggle was. And that's what's really changed for me. Now when I sit down with a person, I'll tell them, look, we're going to meet for 12 weeks. We're going to meet for nine weeks. We're going to meet for 16 weeks, whatever the time period is. Because after the initial time of sitting down and hearing what the situation is, I want to be able to look at scripture and say, well, this is what scripture says about this. And so this is the path we're going to take, and this is where we're going to try to go. Now, certainly things can deviate and change and move, and, and you find out more information, and so you have to change the initial agenda. But you want to be able to help a person because you're giving them hope and saying, Scripture says you can get here. 
And this is how we're going to help you get to here. This is where you need to get to. Listen to the, the questions listed by Trip here under this first one, establishing the ministry agenda. He lists a couple questions that we should be asking and, and, and helping us define what this agenda would be. Number one, what does the Bible say about the information gathered? So when we're getting to know a person and we're finding out more information in their life, what does the Bible say about what we now know? Number two, what are the goals of change? What are the goal? What are the goals for ch- of change? Meaning, what are God's goals for change? What does God want to see happen in this person's life, not my own? And three, what are biblical methods for accomplishing God's goals of change? Now, let's um, let me read a story here. I read way back in uh, chapter ten of this book a story about Sharon and Ed. And I'm going to read the story again. And then we're going to look practically at how, if we ask these three questions, what does the Bible say about the information that's been gathered? What are God's goals for change? And what are some biblical methods for accomplishing God's goals of change? How we might be able to take the information from the story and apply it to those three questions. And then uh, we'll wrap up with some some, uh, practical situations for number two, clarifying responsibility. Listen to the story. Sharon approached me after the Sunday service. She said that her marriage was a disaster and that she needed to talk immediately. We set up a time to meet, and I asked her to invite her husband, Ed. However, Sharon came alone, telling her story emotionally and in great detail. Ed had been unwilling to come, telling her to get her act together. He was out of here. Sharon told of an increasingly violent relationship. She and Ed were no longer sleeping in the same room or going anywhere together. They had separate bank accounts and had recently agreed that it was best to eat supper separately. Their two young children took turns eating with each parent. Even before their marriage, they had experienced communication problems. Ed felt that Sharon was always trying to control him. Sharon felt that Ed never paid attention to her viewpoint unless she made it real clear. Yet Ed said that Sharon was the most beautiful woman in the world, and Sharon said Ed was the best thing that ever happened to her. Ed was a mover and a shaker with an expanding import business. And Sharon enjoyed being with people that matter. She had lived in foster homes all her life and never knew her natural parents. Ed was raised in a working-class urban neighborhood. Ed had said for years that Sharon was slowly destroying his manhood. Sharon confessed to two affairs during the marriage. Ed was very angry, and she appeared to be the same. Sharon made her agenda very clear when we talked. I am not here to work on me, she said. I think I am okay. I am here because my marriage is in trouble. Do you think you can get my husband to talk to you? He's the one who needs help. Okay, if we were to ask all four of these questions, obviously some things become real clear. First of all, what does the Bible say about the information gathered? Well, first of all, Sharon is trying to move the responsibility aside. I'm not here for me. I'm here for my marriage. So the Bible says that Sharon's marriage is her primary human relationship. Above her children, above her job, it is to be her marriage, and we see this in Genesis 2, and we see this in Ephesians 5. We see the Bible says that relationships, relationship struggles reveal our hearts. So she's in a difficult situation, but it's revealing a heart situation, which is Luke 6 or Mark chapter 7. 
The Bible says that it's easier to see another's faults than to see our own. That's in Matthew 7 or in Hebrews 3. The Bible says that God calls us to peace in relationships. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Our Romans 12. The Bible says that forgiveness is the way to peace and reconciliation. That would be Luke 17 or Matthew 18 or Ephesians 4, 29 through 5, 2. The Bible says that God gives Sharon and Ed everything they need to work on their marriage. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9. The Bible says that God clearly describes how a husband and wife should relate to each other. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. So what you might start with by, and somebody comes, and we're going to discuss here practically that in a minute. I think this first question really could be summed up in, what do you know that the Bible says about this situation? You may not have all the answers, but what do we know? Let's start with what we know. Let's start with what the Bible says, and then we can go from there. The second question would be, what are God's goals of change for Sharon? Well, to move from blind self-righteousness to humble self-awareness. To move from bitterness to forgiveness. To move from seeking vengeance to seeking to do good. To move from self-protection to loving and sacrificial service. To move from being angry and withdrawing to productive communication. To move from separation to the pursuit of reconciliation. So you see how we go from, okay, well, here's what the Bible says about the situation. Here's where, according to what the Bible says, what God wants to see happen in our life. Or we move from the sin things we see to what we see as the opposite side from Scripture. And then asking ourselves a third question, what are biblical methods for accomplishing God's goal of change? Well, there would be a couple. To help Sharon to see herself in the mirror of God's Word. So she's probably not reading the Bible and help her to learn how to read her Bible with an eye for her own heart and not someone else's. Maybe practically, have Sharon keep a focused journal meaning where she's writing down as she begins to see the themes of her own heart and how those themes play out in her actions and in the reactions. You might encourage Sharon to study Psalm 73 or 1 Peter 1 to help her with her discouragement or anger or fear. But you're now taking the Bible and you're applying it to her life. Now the second thing that dovetails closely with this is if we've got an agenda by asking ourselves the question, this is what we want to see change from Scripture, these are some practical things we're going to do to help them get there. We have number two here, clarify responsibility. One of the most important truths we can communicate to someone is where I am responsible and where God is responsible. Now, we certainly know that God is sovereign over all things, but we also know that in His sovereignty... He's decreed that we would have responsibility. And oftentimes what's most difficult in a situation is people are trying to figure out, well, what can I do and what is God supposed to be doing here? And we tend to try to do more than we're supposed to be doing and pull into what God's doing, or we can even go the opposite way. Let me draw something on the board here. all under number two, clarify responsibility. 
two circles. Circle number one. Circle number two. Let's put some things in here. Our responsibility. Concern as the bigger circle, my responsibility as the inner circle. Now, watch what happens here. In a situation, this is the question, when we're trying to help somebody clarify responsibility, you're starting with the question of what do we know, right? We already asked that question initially. What does the Bible say? And when when we're reading the scriptures, as we're looking to see what the Bible says, we're going to quickly understand the Bible is going to tell us some things that fall under this first one, what I'm to do. But it's also going to help us to understand the concerns that we have about all the other stuff fall under what we entrust to God. Now, typically what happens is we try to expand our circle out this way. We try to take on a little more than we've been actually assigned. And we're bumping into what is God's responsibility rather than just our responsibility And Tripp calls this a mini-Messiah. Or we can actually go the other way. We try to decrease our circle, quoting from the Keswick theology, let go, and let God, or, or passive. Now, either is a wrong response, because the goal is to be able to help a person, or myself, starting with, as we talked about last week, starting with myself, church discipline starts with myself, being able to analyze my heart through the scriptures, and to find, okay, what, I, what should I be doing here, and then what things do I need to be entrusting to God? Now, let's think of some Let's think of some practical things to help here. You get this? My responsibility and the concerns I leave to other concerns I leave to God. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna to uh, I want you to open your Bibles. I'm going to read you sort of a scenario, and then I want you all to think through this. And if this was a person that was coming to you. How would you encourage them in terms of, as, you're look, as, as Scripture verses come to mind, or as principles from Scripture come to mind, let's put them in, do they clarify responsibility, are they, are they uh, under my responsibility, or are they under the concern label? Let's, let's, I'm gonna have, we're going to have three. First one, we'll call him Joe. Joe has a hard workplace situation. His employer isn't necessarily treating him fairly. In fact, his employer disrespects him oftentimes. Joe is doing his best in 
the relationships that are there. But he's not quite sure what he should be doing. And so he's coming to you, maybe he's coming to you on a Wednesday evening, or he's coming to you in the middle of the week over coffee, or he's coming to you on a Sunday afternoon and saying, hey, this is my situation at work. It's quite difficult being disrespected. What should I do? What would you tell him? Scripture? Honor authority. Ephesians 6. Yep, God's got him in that situation. He's trying to handle the, figure out how to handle the, the, the relationship. And you're asking good questions, which is what you would do in the situation. But from what we know, he's trying to handle the relationship with his employer that's not good. He wants to know, how, well, what, what can I do? What am I supposed to be doing in this situation? Peter 2, where it talks about where Christ says, when he was reviled, reviled, not again. Correct. This would be here. wanting us to do something that is contrary to God's law. Sure. So you've got to, got to make that decision. Yeah. You know, this one near this Ephesians 6, there's two sides to that Ephesians 6 passage. One is the employee side, one's the employer side. you got to trust the employer side to the Lord. Yeah, Bill. Right, and that and and this situation is just the context of Philippians four thirteen, which is difficult circumstances. And Paul's saying, "By the grace of God, I can do this," as compared to, "I can run through a brick wall." <laughs> Verse fifteen. 
Yeah. Can you read it? Now, does he have a does he have a solution to his problem here? No. It hasn't been worked out, but that's what he's looking for. But this is what he needs. And this is oftentimes the 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 answer of whether or not he's truly given over to God. Will you do what you are supposed to do? Are you trying to look for all the other stuff to change first? And typically, the, the desire, certainly in a difficult circumstance, is to see the circumstance change. But we're just to be faithful and let God take care of some of the other unknowns. Okay, good. That's the first one. Now you're warmed up. Okay, so concern is the bigger uh, circle. Responsibility is the inner circle. Amy. Amy is a single mother. She's concerned about making the ends meet. The finances are tight. And she's very worried. What should she do? Say she is. She is. Focus on how we can help her think about it. So yes, there would be family situations that would come into play, but just in terms of how she's thinking about it, what she can do on her own. Now certainly, she can go talk to family. Is she in a church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But rather than trying to relieve her situation, how can we help her uh, think about her situation and, and do what she can do, and at the same time, uh, entrust some of the other things. about some on the God side. Proverbs 16 would come into play here as well. Man plans his way, but God directs his steps. There's a big verse. There's a big verse under this one. Thank you. 
to supply all your needs. So, Cody, unquestionably, it becomes a, a faith issue. Sure. Some of it's a faith issue. All of it's a faith issue, but some of it's also a practical issue, right? Like, for instance, I might, depending upon her work situation, I might take her to Thessalonians and say, man, doesn't work, you shouldn't eat. You're working hard, doing what you can, trusting the Lord can provide, being faithful. But yes, ultimately it's a faith issue, isn't it? Which is why this uh, James passage comes into play. But what she needs to understand is, let's just take it for face value. Obviously, we could go much deeper into the situation. Typically, the thought is, man, if I, I, I gotta, if I don't do just everything just right, you know, I'm not going to get everything I need. And what we're trying to help her understand is, be faithful, do what you can do, trust the Lord. He's going to do these things up here. Right, David Weber. Last one. Eugene. Yes, ma'am. Yo, oh, yeah. Where would I where would I go? Stop sinning. Yeah, so where I would take that, uh, uh, someone like that is typically they don't understand really the, the context of the church as a whole and then the church as a local. So I would take them to something like 1 Corinthians 12 and explain to them just the joy of now being part of the body of Christ and how now as an individual member there is a church somewhere that is lacking a foot, a toe, a hand, a nose, an, an ear, something of that nature. And encourage her then practically on from Scripture what we should be looking for in the sense of uh, in a good local church, which is faithful preaching of the word, loving, you know, the love of the body of Christ, um, commitment to the gospel, to a true gospel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, nece- I wouldn't necessarily get caught up in all the difficulties she's had before and just try to help direct her into what to look for 
uh, but giving her the bigger picture of the joy of being part now of the corporate body and how that's evidenced within the local body. Now, when you go back next year, no, four years, you can. Let's draw this to a close. So we've had, uh, number one, establish a personal ministry agenda, and number two, clarify responsibility. I think number two is uh, certainly very helpful. That's oftentimes very helpful just in, in informal conversations, helping a person clarify what the truth is, where they're supposed to give it to God, and what responsibility they might have. And then whether it would be informal or even informal, if you're meeting with a person, say you're discipling or meeting with him on a regular basis, having an agenda, having a goal in mind defined by Scripture of where you'd like to move, see this person move to and helping them then get the tools to be able to actually make the change. So you're not just wanting to give them the new truths, you're helping them actually make practical application. And you'll see in the coming weeks where we'll... Uh, next next week we'll talk about holding them accountable and what that looks like and helping them see their identity in Christ so they don't get discouraged when when the change doesn't happen quite as fast as they might want. Any closing questions or comments before we conclude with prayer? Yeah, there's actually going to be four. There's two. Got to come next week. Hold now.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your kindness in giving us your word that it is uh, life-changing. And we thank you, Father, for giving us the opportunity to minister to one another. And Father, we do want to we want to grow and change and be more like you, like your son. And so I pray that you would help um, all of us to respond in humility as we would help one another. But also, Father, that we would look for opportunities to help one another. That we would be centered upon the truth of Scripture. We would be able to help one another understand what, what goals you have in mind for us in terms of change. And then, Father, that we would be able to help one another understand what our responsibility is. And then as we will look back, look at next week, how to then make practical application of that responsibility. We thank you, Lord, for this morning, the opportunity you've given us. We ask now as we would go to a bit of time of fellowship and we would prepare our hearts for worship here in a few minutes, that you might grant much grace upon that time. In Jesus' precious name we pray.